This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. So good afternoon, traders, and welcome to yet another uh, The S&P 500 Hit New Highs Today edition of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. My name is Jack Pelzer. I'm Dan Hodgman. Uh, Dan, did you hear the news? The S&P 500 hit new highs today. Oh, I thought the records broke and they just kept repeating themselves like we've heard multiple times over the last year. Yeah. Boy, do I wish I could send the market higher with just a tweet myself. Anyway, today's episode we're going to call Typhoon Part 2. And that's because last week we interviewed the chief investment officer of Typhoon Capital, Mr. David Klusendorf. And today we'll be talking with the company's CEO, Mr. James Katulis. As a reminder, Typhoon is a deconstructed, multi-strategy trading firm, but James Katulis is not your everyday trader. All right, let's hear this. <laughs> All right. He's also a programmer and lawyer, having got his law degree from Northwestern University. Go Cats. <laughs> but uh, he's perhaps best known for being the badass lawyer who brought a whooping on MF Global and Jeff Corzine back in 2011. Oh, nice. Yeah, so uh, he recovered millions of dollars for his clients and lobbied hard for criminal charges against Mr. Corzine. I'm sure Jeff and James will cover this amazing story in detail during today's interview. But first, uh, I have two things I'd like to discuss. Uh, Part one, we are doing our first ever Limit Up podcast listener survey starting on Tuesday. That's right. uh, We want your feedback so we can make this show even better. Well, I hope it's good already, but make it better. So pretty soon, we're going to announce a vanity URL. We'll do that on the blog and on the site page, and we'll give you guys a reminder, too. And uh, we're going to give you guys a short survey. It's just 10 multiple-choice questions, so, uh, you know, come on, take it. Uh, But since you're traders and probably won't do anything for free, uh, we're also going to give away $1,000 Amazon gift cards to randomly drawn participants. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, And hey, if we just get 20 of you to fill it out, that means half of you win. So that's just trader math. So please help us out. We'll be announcing that URL soon. It only takes two minutes. And our second point of order today is the equities market is a meth fuel rocket ship, and we're all just along for the ride. Would that be a fair characterization of these markets, Dan? 100%. Um, right now, they're in a cycle, and there's a cycle that has continued for the, uh, let's just say, last couple of years. Um, take out what news we're talking about, but the news that has, it, the whatever the main focal point in the news is at that time, there's a cycle created. Um, it's good news. Things are looking good. We're making progress on X, Y, Z, um, and that's what allows these markets to rally up. Then we get uh, we hit some roadblocks. We have tariffs, things of that nature come into play, and equities start to turn down. Fed comes out. Fed makes some information that allows these markets to find a little bit of excitement. Good, more good news enters into the marketplace, and boom, we start to rally and push towards highs again. Um, it, it's a continuous cycle, but that's how these markets work, especially it had been some time since we saw all-time highs for a while. We had the break in- All the way since November. <laughs> right. Well, if you what, yeah. if you keep going way back, it, it, there, it had been kind of forgotten, but this is how markets react when we create these highs. We test them. We stick our toes in the water. We push it higher, and it comes back to levels where we're a little bit more comfortable, and it'll continue to do this and continue, as they say, the equity market takes the stairs up. Um, it's an ever ever continuous grind to the upside, no matter what. That's why it's one of the greatest investments 
that you can look, you can sure. think about. Obviously, it's you don't want to buy the highs. You wait for those big dips. You invest at the big dips, and you take it up for ten years. Um, so there's great opportunity out yeah, there. Yeah, just an FYI for any listeners out there, we are recording right now at 11:40 a.m. <laughs> you know, and that's the real time. I'm not going to try and be you know prognosticate. 11:40 a.m. on Thursday, so uh, December 12th. Bit, December 12th. Uh, I'm holding up. A, a Wall Street Journal with a date on it, so you all know that I'm telling the truth. Um, but as we sit here right now, uh, the markets were up big in the morning off the- That was up 300. Yes. Now, it, it, it's come back a little bit. I think we're about Here, so you guys now. can fact check us. All right, you can fact I'm check I'm going to pull up my uh, my charts on my phone Dan's here. Dan's pulled out his ticker tape machine. Right, and keep in mind, I don't trade off the phone. I just have data sure. access. I do not trade on my phone. It's something I've been- trained to do for a long time. I refuse to have access to it. All right, let's see. S&P 500 is trading 3160 after the rally up um, to 3175 approximately. So we are down just a little bit on the day or on the move up, but it broke from 3175 down to 3150. From 3150, we're up 10 points now. We found a little bit of support there. Now you can you can tell exactly where what time we're talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you imagine this is going to you know we've seen a lot of these sort of head fakes, uh, sort of by the tweets and stuff like that. Hundred um, percent. Does this time feel any different, or is this just happening more because the market is so primed and you have algo buying and stuff like that early off it? Um, no, it, just like any economic release. Take crude oil yesterday was a prime example. I actually, if you watch our YouTube videos, I talked about it on the recap and I showed the example of this. Crude oil yesterday was expecting a draw of approximately 2.1 million barrels, mm-hmm. um, ended up getting a boost. That ignites these markets. I think it was a boost of 800,000. Don't quote me because I can't quite remember off the top of my head. But there's an initial head fake whenever information hits the marketplace. That market broke instantaneously. Hey, we're adding 800,000 barrels to the marketplace. It broke, rallied back up, and then it started its actual move. And so whenever you get this information, there is always what's going to happen, I believe. um, You're going to see systems kind of shut down, allow these markets to move extremely fast, allow people to quickly take advantage of a move. And then you're going to see everyone quickly jumping out of the market. So I look at it as there's the emotional, the emotional move. That's the first thing we see. Then you're going to start to see people processing information. Once that emotional moves over, the market's going to get to start actually taking in this information, digesting it, and moving in the direction we want to go. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we're at 3160 right now. We've yep. got a few weeks left in the year. Do you want to revise any uh, year-end targets? What do you got? 3200 maybe. Uh, I don't think uh, I'm looking at it in my opinion right now. I think we're pretty much stable for this year. And uh, next year, the call is 4,000. Oh, 4,000 next 000. year. Okay, and I'm reducing my call to <laughs> 900. No. <laughs> As you guys know, when Jack and I make uh, random predictions, we're usually way off. We are I. way e. off. We really lost farms on, last on, on farms last week. We're also uh, we're spreading out further and further <laughs> on our predictions. Um, anyway, uh, we have a guy with us today who definitely knows how to keep market participants on the straight and narrow. And uh, that, of course, is the CEO of Typhoon Capital, Mr. James Gatulis. So, uh, Dan, thanks for stopping by. We're about as to have always, a little potluck in the office. Uh, as always, I'm excited to go eat some lunch, and thanks for having me, Jack. Right. So we're going to go get some food. In the meantime, please enjoy today's Limit Up interview, and we'll be back at the end with a few closing remarks. 
Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast on Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me at pointsandfigures.com and on Twitter at pointsandfigures. Today, welcoming James Katulis to the program. If you don't know who James is, he's the CEO of Typhon Capital Management and president and co-founder of the Commodity Customer Coalition. Welcome to the program, James. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. So, James... Um, runs a uh, a capital management firm that trades futures, correct? Mostly, yeah. We do some crypto and some single-name equity options as well. Uh, just curious why you picked futures over equities. Well, so our model is, is what I call a deconstructed uh, multi-strategy hedge fund, and we hire sector specialists, people who've got deep knowledge in, in one specific market, say metals, or we have a farmer in Indiana who trades uh, grains, for example, right? And uh, I think that the futures markets have more residual edge uh, than equities, which, which have become incredibly efficient and competitive. Interesting. So like if I was a trader, top step trader backs traders, and then, you know, eventually they go on their own, kind of how we used to do on the floor. If I was a trader, how would I get noticed by you, and what would the process be like if I wanted you to be a part of your network, let's say? Yeah, I mean, so we do a, a couple-step screening process. So so most of our traders come through either my personal network or that of our, our CIO, Dave Klusendorf, or our, our head of quantitative trading in, in, in London, but basically start with, you have to have some kind of verified track record. So we're not hiring junior traders, like people who haven't traded before and, and developing them. Um, generally, it's people who have strategies, they've been successful, um, and we can understand why they're successful. So we can evaluate if there's an edge and if the edge is sustainable. So we, we start by verifying the veracity of the track record from either brokerage statements or audit reports. Uh, we do a quantitative screen to see how they compare to our existing managers in broader indexes, other other hedge funds. Um, you know, so our our big focus as a firm is, is having zero beta and finding managers who've got uncorrelated return streams, but not just mathematically uncorrelated, but ha having distinct return drivers. So, for example, like the supply of this year's corn versus next year's corn, and and the relative demand for each of those, like that has nothing to do with what's going on on the S&P. It's more like weather driven, what, how many acres uh, farmers are planting, um, you know, th things like that, right? So um, we've generally done very well in stress periods, um, sort of trading in, in 2008, one month before Lehman, got that right, made 35% there, <laughs> um, you know, made a, uh, had a great year last year when 93% of other funds uh, lost money. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of a fun business, right? Because, I mean, anyone could just, like, buy the S&P 500 or, you know, try to day trade that. But uh, um, we're, we're looking at more esoteric markets and relationships that, you know, still are – where traders still can't have edge, right? They could, they could have information networks. They could have uh, – Better data, you know, for example, like our farmer gets up in a plane and does low flying, you know, crop surveys. So, you know, he gets, he gets better crop surveys than you could get from a satellite, for example. Um, and, and that eventually could go to a drone. Think about yeah. it. I mean, you know, yeah, no, I mean, I, we're, we're actually using some, some drones now, yeah, actually. That's crazy. Um, 
Yeah, but, but it, you know, it's fun. It's ever changing, and you know, we're always looking for for new ways for to do different things. If I wanted to aspire to be a part of your thing, so you know, I mean, when I was on the floor, we traded right, and a lot of guys talked about doing a hedge fund, but we really didn't know how to do it. You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and you read about all these guys making all this money. How would I set myself up as a trader? to become a candidate for somebody like you? Yeah, so so the cool thing about our model is we centralize all the risk management, the legal, the compliance, the operation, the back office, the capital raising. So our managers essentially get to run their own hedge fund under our unified general partner, but they don't have to know how to actually run the asset management component of it and deal with all the stressors and distractions that takes them away from trading. So it's, it's really about developing an edge, developing a, a, a trading strategy and, and making it process oriented. And it can still be a discretionary strategy, you know, perhaps it's model based or, or, or whatever, but, but the biggest thing is, is it's got to be a process. It can't be like, you know, this guy knows how to read a chart better than another guy. <laughs> you know, this is just not a sustainable edge, right? Right, right. And then would you raise capital for these guys too? Or women? Yeah, no, that's how it works, right? So, like, we've got 10 groups of, of portfolio managers at Typhon. Uh, we set them up in their own investment vehicles. So, uh, depending on the strategy, it's it's some combination of, of separately managed accounts, uh, U.S. funds, Cayman funds, and uh, inclusion multi-strategy portfolios. You know, so, so there's a wide range of options and, and structures to get these return streams and into customers' hands and, and get them you know, structured according to, to each customer's needs. Um, but none of our traders really have to worry about that. They need to worry about you know making money in a process-driven, consistent manner. And the flip side, if I wanted to invest in something like this, so I'm an accredited investor, would you take an accredited investor money? Or are you beyond that? Are you just going for big pools of capital or, or how does that work? Yeah, so most of our investors have to meet the, the, a standard one level above accredited um, called a qualified eligible participant. So it's basically a $2 million liquid net worth um, outside of their house, right? So it's not as high as a qualified purchaser, which is, which is a $5 million threshold for, for an uh, individual, but it's, it's like accredited plus. But yeah, I mean, our you know, customers could pick one strategy they like. Like our most popular is our Vulcan Metals Fund. Uh, there's a team of guys who's back with 500 bucks when he was 18 years old, turned it into many, many, many multiples of that. And, you know, we, we wound up recovering all of his capital that was, was tied up in the amount of bankruptcy, um, you know, pro bono. Um, and, you know, he joined Typhon and, you know, there's a guy who's got a, a three sharp ratio for 10 years. So, you know, it's, you know, incredible um, outperformance on a risk-adjusted basis and, and one of the lowest correlated hedge fund strategies in, in the universe. And then if I want to get my money out as an investor, how does that work? Yeah, so our managed accounts have daily liquidity. Um, our funds are generally quarterly liquidity. You know, so basically you just give us a written request uh, for redemption. If it's, if it's a manager account, the broker is the one who's going to actually return the cash to them. Uh, we, ju we would just stop trading the account. Um, you know, if it's a fund, then we've got an independent fund administrator who, who handles the redemption and cuts the net asset value for, for that investor's account. Wires the money back. So generally it would be end of quarter plus about 15 days. Okay, that's cool. So it's, I mean... 
The nice thing about hedge funds is they're liquid, so you can get your money out. Well, it depends, right? I mean, some hedge funds aren't liquid, right? I mean, you could see some with their, you know, say a distressed hedge fund could have a five-year lockup or, you know, two-year lockup, right? I mean, basically, we trade all liquid instruments, so we're able to pass that liquidity um, on. So, you know, I, I, I fundamentally believe it's the investor invests with us, it's their money. So we don't put any kind of gates, lockups, any kind of um, impediments for them to actually, you know, accessing their funds because it's, it's their money. So how long, let's say I'm a trader and I reach out to you or I come through the network, how long does that vetting process take from day one to I'm on the platform and I'm trading? It really depends on the quality of the diligence information that the, the trader has. Um, you know, we, we can be nimble and, uh, um, I mean, we've, there's, you know, one manager, you know, a while back, I mean, we got him fully onboarded in a month, right? Had a great, you know, great pedigree due diligence was, was perfect, you know, all, you know, ready turnkey, you know, we, we had another guy who, who came to us with a handwritten track record. So, you know, we had to go yeah. to the broker, <laughs> yeah. download the statements, <laughs> you know, provide, you know, perform all the accounting on that. And, and believe it or not, the handwritten track record was right. But, you know, obviously we can't trust that, right? Like if we're going to take investor money, we're going to go in, do the diligence, go straight to the broker, look at the statements and, and you know, verify that. And, you know, we do background checks on the guys. We do qualitative screens. Um, you know, for me, one, just as a firm, we have a no jerk rule. Um, you know, life's too short to, I mean, yeah. it really is. It's life's too short to deal with people you don't like. And, and I just think more importantly, from a trading point of view, from a risk management point of view, you know, I find that arrogant traders tend to be the ones that double down on trades, um, even if they're wrong, um, you know, get married to positions. And, and, and that's how they blow up a customer or blow up the firm. And, you know, we have no tolerance for that. So so yeah. we, we look for humble people who know how to admit when they're wrong and, and, and take a loss. Interesting. And uh, you started trading crypto. How does the diligence on crypto differ from regular futures? And are you trading outside established exchanges? Because crypto is such a Wild West product right now. Yeah, so, so we keep it to the 10 biggest coins um, by market cap, except for we do not trade Zcash or Monero because we can't perform um, KYC or AML on those. But we had an independent accounting firm gave them view only API access into the, the hot wallets um, that we used to trade on a proprietary basis. So they were able to perform an independent uh, verification of the pre-fund track record. Um, and then we set up the fund in a CFTC regulated vehicle. Um, we've got a third party administrator on it. The admin has um, real time view only access into those wallets so they could see every transaction um, in real time. Uh, we don't accept crypto contributions in kind, which is, you know, just the, you know, recipe for, for AML, you know, KYC <laughs> issues, you know, and, and we get an independent audit on it. So, you know, you don't have SOC 2 compliant crypto custodians yet, which is a requirement for any of the big four audit firms to audit. So we, we don't use a big, we use a big four auditor on most of our funds, not on crypto because of that, but we're, we're still able to get a, you know, a, a reasonable, you know, audit on that and, and, and have three sets of eyes on the trading. Interesting. And I think that's one of the things like when you're uh, like me, I was a floor trader 
so I went in and traded my own dough, very similar to what the top step trader people are doing. And, you know, there is no audit. There is no there statements, there, though, right? There are statements. You get statements from your trading firm. Yeah. So, so for us, like we hire a lot of people who who fit that profile, who only are trading their own money, right? But as long as we've got access to direct to the custodian, so we don't trust statements that are just handed to us by a trader, we got to get them from the broker, right? But we can go through and verify them and prepare a regulatory compliant track record from the broker statements. Right. Okay. And uh, how about options? Are you are you starting to trade some futures on options? Options on futures, I mean? Yeah, we've, we've been doing those for the 11 years. Okay, that's cool. And all products? I'll be a little more specific. Uh, okay, so there's uh, metal options. There's Forex, interest rate futures. We trade a little bit of Forex, not a lot. E-minis. Yeah, we, we do S&Ps. Yeah. We're trading most products. If you were a trader today getting started... Because you deal with a lot of them. What do you think is like the most important thing to focus on to be successful? To me, it's, it, it's make your trading process oriented, right? Like you're, cre- you're competing with so many algorithms out there that, you know, emotion on your end is, is, is really a killer, right? Like you, you just, you have to be disciplined. And um, you know, one of the things, if, if you're a discretionary trader, um, sometimes you could take advantage of that emotion, right? But it's, you know, you, you have to have a plan, okay? Every trade, like, why are you constructing? What is your return driver for, for entering that trade? What is your profit target? What is your stop loss? Like, you know, you've got to have a plan before you, you, you get into the market. You can't, you know, just, just go on, you know, in, intuition. Like, you're not going to beat computers with, you know, eight microsecond execution time, you know, reading read a chart. So, you know, you've got to be smarter. You've got to have a better you know, idea, you know, than these algos. And, and you really got to develop that idea. And you really have to constantly be evolving it, and uh, you know, looking, looking for new return drivers. Because I mean, even you know, even the best alphas generally decay after after three years. So you need to to constantly be refining, changing parameters, and, and, and do this all in a scientific way. Interesting. That's a that's a great point. That's a that's a super great point. Um, so you formed the Commodity Customer Coalition. Is that right? It's called the CCC. Yeah, I co-founded that with John L. Rowe. John L. Rowe. Okay. And that was because basically MF Global blew up due to the fact that John Corzine, for lack of a better word, misused customer funds to cover his own positions and essentially locked lots of people out of the market. Is that correct or am I off base? Yeah, I mean, it was was a completely unprecedented situation. So in in about 200 years of commodity trading in the United States, every SCM had honored the legal principle that customer segregated funds were segregated every second of every day. So unlike a bank, which banks are allowed to engage in fractional reserve lending. So say if you have a 5% reserve requirement, a bank can lend out 20 bucks for every dollar in deposits they have. Every bank, by definition, is insolvent. If every depositor came to the bank at the same time to withdraw their money, the bank would fail if not for the Fed or, you know, overlaying lending facilities, whatever, right? Commodity yeah. broker is not set up that way. Commodity broker, you need a greater than one-to-one ratio of, of assets to, to, to liabilities for depositors every second, every day. So what Corzine did was, you know, essentially concoct a uh, falsified segregation statement that he presented to regulators 
that with the help of a manual adjustment with no supporting documentation, evidence, or rationale for making this adjustment, said that there was a $540 million excess of assets liabilities in the SEG report um, when actually the, the, they had a deficit of about $250 million. And um, basically gave him plausible deniability to, to raid the customer accounts and send several hundred million dollars to MF Global's lender to meet the margin call on um, incredibly levered trades that, that, that Corzine was making. So let me ask you sort of a tangential question, just because I'm curious about it, that it maybe will illuminate um, sort of what he did, but just to sort of inf- information. So in the financial crisis, when the world melted down in 08, 09, Goldman switched their charter from being sort of an investment bank to a full-blown bank. Correct. And a bank holding company. A bank holding company. Can Goldman today lever up on that sort of ratio that you talked about banks do, 20 cents for every dollar or whatever? Can they lever up? Well, so that, that, that leverage is as a lender. So, so, probably, so they can't yeah. use that, but can they use that for their proprietary trading? I'm, that's the, sort of the question. No, no. So, so, so the trade-off as a bank holding company is that under the Volcker rule, you can't engage in proprietary trading. Okay. Okay. But you know, Goldman as a complex, right. Just to use yeah. an example, like, right. I'm sure there is more than one entity in their corporate structure. So I am not intimately familiar with Goldman's corporate structure. I'm not either. I I'm would just hazard the that they have. Yeah, I, I, I would hazard a guess that you know Goldman and any other you know formerly investment bank that has become a bank holding company likely has a bank holding company entity that is um, allows to fractionally reserve lend, but they're not allowed to engage in proprietary trading. Yeah, and they probably do have entities somewhere that are allowed to engage in proprietary trading. I was just, I was just curious. It's just a curious thing. You know, when, when, when you have sort of a regulation that's a one size fits all people will do stuff. The other thing that I think is interesting about the MF global situation that people discount is um, people's lives were really hurt. So not only like sort of the, the farmers and stuff that the CCC was, um, representing, but you know, I knew traders that were locked out of the floor, that were pulled off the floor, that couldn't log into Globex. And meanwhile, the market's moving around. You got positions, you can't get in and out of them. And and MF Global shareholders, shareholders of other companies that were in, kind of hurt by the the call it bad halo effect of MF Global. CME stock tanked in response to it. I was a CME stockholder at the time, and I watched a bunch of my net worth drain away. You know, what do you make of all that? I mean, how do you, and he, he wasn't held to any sort of, I mean, he can't, he can't run a hedge fund in the CFTC umbrella anymore or something. Like that. <laughs> Is that the only slap on the wrist? Yeah. So, 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 so you threw a lot out there. Uh, yeah. so maybe let's back up because this is yeah. eight years ago. Right. Um, and it was complicated then. And I think memories have probably faded yeah. quite a bit. So, so basically, you know, Corzine was brought in to MF Global. It's a 200-year-old commodity shop, the world's largest commodity broker. It was spun off by Man Investments, the large UK-based um, asset management institution. It went public, wound up being the second fastest company, if I recall, to go from 
IPO to bankruptcy after the first fastest being its predecessor, Refco, who MF Global absorbed Refco's um, customer segregated funds. Well, the guys on the floor, people on the floor, like there weren't a lot of fans of Revco among the group that I ran with. And then, you know, Hillary Clinton cleared Revco. <laughs> so that says it all, right? I mean. There you go, right? <laughs> so the crazy thing, even with the massive fraud at Revco, all of the fraud was done in unregulated foreign currency accounts. So even when you have the situation of the fastest company to go from IPO to bankruptcy in Revco because of fraud, okay, Customers in the segregated futures account did not lose one penny. Their accounts transferred overnight to MF Global, and it was like nothing ever happened. Right? Yeah. What made what Corzine did it so shocking and so such a nasty um, systemic impact to the futures industry was that when he placed these trades, they were basically a good premise that. The pigs, Portugal, uh, Ireland, Iceland, Greece, and Spain would not default on their sovereign debt. That was the premise of his trades. However, he did this with 30 to 1 leverage using over-the-counter derivatives in the UK that he hid from the rating agency. Right. Right. So what happened is he put these trades on. Oh, so they didn't come because they were done in the UK and they were bilateral contracts independent. They didn't come under the CFTC purview at all. Well, I wouldn't say at all, right? They still had their CFTC segregation requirements. But basically what Corzine did is he used repo to maturity um, wrappers to book the P&L as if these trades were winners up front and essentially windrow dressed the balance sheet of MF Global, who you know, was basically near junk level credit when he was making these trades. So, you know, Corzine was formerly was CEO of Goldman Sachs, the governor and senator from New Jersey. He was installed on a global uh, by J.C. Flowers, one of his former Goldman buddies, Mm -hmm. to transition the firm from just a sleepy futures broker into a global proprietary trading powerhouse, right? Right, So he comes in there, he takes these, he basically takes all of the firm's capital, levers it up massively, hides it from the rating agencies, and a global risk manager goes to the board and says this he's risking the entire company, he could blow up the entire company. He's like, you need to do something about this board, and the board fires the risk manager. Okay. Uh, so I mean this was not like a surprise. This is not like something that happened bad on one day. It was like a bad trade. This was something this is, people knew about. So th- this uh, sort of- hit that risk and the board did nothing. So I mean there's all sorts of business school cases uh, and law school cases here coming out uh, just in this little five minute uh, chat we had. DNO insurance would not cover the board once the risk manager made them aware, I wouldn't think. So they would be on the board. As, as far as I know, DNO wound up covering all of all or more, most, of course, on legal expenses, and wow. believe it or not. So, wow. you know, years of lawsuits, you know, bankruptcy case, the class action. As far as I know, DNO covered all of it. Okay. Wow, that's incredible. Um, but so moving on, you know, like one of the things that people think about MF Global is it to, to basically kind of justify, you know, Corzine's actions and, and you know, blame the victim. It's saying that, you know, these people, they, they, they invested in futures. It was risky. Sure. You know, what do they expect? Right. But 
what a lot of people don't understand is these trades that Corzine made, okay, this wasn't like someone, a, a customer at Global wasn't like investing in a hedge fund. Okay, no. they had their money in what was legally akin to a safe deposit box. Right. Okay. If Corzine's trades were wildly successful, Corzine and MF Global would have got those profits. Not that. The customers had zero share of the profits. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, so, so they, they did not, they, maybe they signed up to take market risk on their own accounts. They did not sign up for Corzine to take 30 to 1 levered bets on their money for which they had zero upside. You know what's interesting okay, about they that? They did not for that. James, you know what's interesting about that is um, at the CME, they passed a rule. This is long before Corzine because people were over trading their accounts and taking too much risk, locals or whatever, and clearing firms weren't catching it in time. This is, we're talking about before electronic trading, right? So you could walk into a pit and, you know, buy 5,000 puts and sell a few thousand S&P futures at the same time put the cards in your pocket and walk away. Don't, don't report the cards, right? Don't turn them in. And the clearing firm essentially is on the risk if you don't have the money in your trading account. And so the Merck passed a rule that said, if somebody d- does that, they get none of the profit if they can't cover it with capital in their account. And that's essentially what you're saying with MF Global is these people put the money up and they weren't getting any of the proceeds MF Global and Corzine was getting all the profits. The other interesting thing about this is I know guys, you know, when I traded, they kept millions in their trading account because they needed it for position management and inventory. And that money would be gone if they cleared MF Global. Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly, right? So, so basically, so what happened is these trades got found out by the rating agencies. They downgraded MF Global's credit. This triggered a margin call on this right. position. So Corzine was completely in love with this trade. I mean, every, everyone knows historically he was a punter. He would put on massive amount of risk, wait for Goldman's balance sheet to bail him out. Mm-hmm. Well, and on Global, he didn't have a Goldman's balance sheet. No. So rather than, you know, he had the option to just reduce the position, secure the margin call, right? But no, he was in love with this trade. This trade was going to show Goldman that they erred when they, they pushed him out as CEO Right. So what did he do? He raided the customer seg accounts to fund the margin call. OK. And it wasn't enough. Right. So they put, try to put every penny of customer liquidity to keep this trade on. And, uh, you know, eventually it got to a one point seven billion dollar shortfall in the customer accounts, which were only six point seven billion in customer assets. Right. Yeah. So equitable holdings was forty four billion in assets. Right. Well, so the broker dealer is only six point seven billion. Corzine. <laughs> you know, basically blew through 1.7 billion, um, you know, customer assets desperately trying to keep this trade on. So what happened? As you said earlier, customers are carried off the trading floor by security. Trading screens go black. Okay. A hundred percent of that 6.7 billion in customer assets is completely frozen. MF Global Holdings files bankruptcy on Halloween 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, Eighth largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. Chrysler was number seven for a, you know, kind of picture of the size of this, right. this thing. And, and so in the first time in 200 years, customers have been denied access to their futures accounts. And like you said earlier, futures are fast moving markets, right? Yeah. So this is not, this and, is and, fiddlywinks. Yeah. Yeah. And this didn't just include people with cash balances, right? Or just futures positions. 
gold bars. Okay. They said, if you had a physical gold bar with a serial number in your name, okay, you had to post 35% of that gold bars value in cash, or they were going to liquidate that gold bar. Oh my God. That was a trustee of this position. If you had a T-bill serial numbered in your name, you had to post 35% of the value of that T-bill, pay it back into the bankruptcy estate to keep that serialized physical property. Uh, he's lucky that Corley okay, like only didn't have an account at MF Global. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we know this was horrible. What, so you formed the CCC, like, can you talk about like what sort of things you had to do to get that like off the ground, who you worked with and sort of where it's at today? If any. Yeah. So, you know, at this, at this point I was a 30 year old hedge fund manager. I would go on to Northwestern law school. I had never worked a day uh, in a law firm. I'd never taken a class in bankruptcy. I had done one $8,000 collections case pro bono on behalf of my golf pro. Yeah. That was my litigation experience, right? At the time, Typhon Capital Management, my firm, uh, we were managing, I think, about $70 million. You know, the firm was myself, my 23-year-old little sister with an advertising degree, mm-hmm. and a uh, farmer named Jared Lehman, who traded agriculture futures, or still yeah. trades agriculture futures for us eight years yeah. later. That was it, right? So when this goes bankrupt, you know, I call it Sam Tenenbaum. He's the head of the Northwestern Law Investor Protection Clinic. Mm-hmm. I was already on the board of that clinic and served as their consulting expert on futures. And Sam, who's gruff old law professor, is like, yeah. Jimmy, get a temporary law license in New York, file an emergency motion, ask for 90% <laughs> of your client's money back. Okay, because at the time, it, it was reported a $600 million shortfall. You know, Sam. You know, you're on yeah. our board, our advisory yeah, yeah. board with yeah, Sam. Yeah. He's a yeah. great dude, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what I do. So I was, I happened to be in New York at the time uh, for Halloween. So as MF Global was going down, you know, people asked if I was stressing out. And look, I was getting a lot of phone calls as an attorney, sure. right? But uh, I love Halloween, as you might know. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually in Harlem at a craft store, staying with my buddy who was in school at Columbia, learning how to sew on a video on my iPhone 4 (laughs) at the time, okay? And sewing this Halloween costume inspired by one of my favorite statues at the Met. I was also a classic scholar, so I love Greek mythology, right? right? So it's Perseus with Medusa's head, Okay. okay? So I was sewing a cape and a toga. Who cares, right? Like, you know, our accounts are just gonna transfer, uh, you know, the next day, right? Well, you know, no... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Halloween itself rolls along. Oh my God, you have this bankruptcy. Sam's like, file this motion. Well, I do that, right? And no one else knew what to do. Like commodity investors, they don't have bankruptcy counsel on staff because no one's ever had to get money out of a commodity bankruptcy before. It literally never happens, right? right. Um, so I filed this motion and um, I have this buddy at the New York Times, Azam Ahmed, who I had met at a hedge fund conference in Palm Beach maybe 10 months before the bankruptcy, right? And Ozzy calls me up. He's like, hey, dude, you know what MF Global is? I'm like, yeah, man, we have you know, accounts there. It's uh, yeah. you know, a total disaster. And he's like, oh, that's great. I'm like, what? No, it's not great. But he's like, well, it's great. I can get you in the New York Times, right? So the day of the bankruptcy, gives me, you know, throws a quote in there about what I'm doing, right? Or, or just about the bankruptcy. I didn't right. show on anything yet, right? Right. Um, and he's like, man, keep me up to date. 
tell me what's going on with this, right? So I wind up filing this emergency motion. I get what's called a pro hoc vice, which is a temporary law license in Latin, right, in New York. I file this emergency motion, and um, Osmond has the New York Times like profile it. So five days after the bankruptcy, I'm on the front page of the New York Times business in a black trench coat on, <laughs> on the street of Fifth Avenue. Too bad he didn't have a fedora. <laughs> you know, I think I actually had a fedora, but I was in Chicago at that time. So I'm, I'm fedora less in the photo. Um, one of our trader's girlfriends said I look like Batman. Yeah. Take it as you will, right? Yeah, but right. So this big-ass photo, right? triggers a thousand phone calls a day, literally not exaggerating a thousand people calling our office in Chicago with me, my little sister, right? Farmers working out of Indiana. So it's just us two in Chicago, Diana's hearing, we're getting so many calls. She literally was hearing phones ringing in her sleep, like waking up in the middle of the night. It did not stop. That's crazy. Our biggest client who had all their money, a couple hundred million bucks at MF Global, they sent their risk manager to our office to answer phones. That's how crazy it was. Wow. Like, All our money is for us at Global. Yeah. Your job is to help James out, right? Yeah, right. So, you know, one of the people who saw this New York Times article and they called, I was still in New York, right? I saw the email from Diana. This guy, like, hey, uh, hey, James, I just talked to this guy. He's got a thousand customer accounts at MF Global. And his dad's a congressman. I think you should call him back. He might help. <laughs> he might help, right? So that's yeah. how I met John L. Rowe, right? So I fly back yeah. to Chicago. John L. Rowe comes to our office. And John's a big dude, right? He yeah. played like offensive line in football. You know yep. John really yeah, well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. He's got a beard like right. a medieval king, right? Yeah, He's just right. like a glorious, big, powerful dude. And he comes to our yeah. office. Put his hand up in the air. He's like, we need to write a white paper and tell the American people why this is such a big deal, right? Yeah. So we just sit down and do it. You know, people say stuff a lot, right? right. But like, you, got, you know, sometimes you got to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. Right. We just sit down. We bang out this white paper. We send it out to all the media we know. This goes viral now. Right. So instead of getting a thousand phone calls a day, and I mean, I got to tell you, these phone calls, this is the saddest stuff I've ever heard. Oh, I know. Right. People's, like, people's is, lives are ruined. Yeah, I mean, total strangers, like farmers, like the manliest dudes on earth are calling me a stranger and sobbing that they can't buy seed because all of their money is frozen. They're going to lose their house. They're going to lose their farm. There's a single mother of twins who was an ex-floor trader. She had her down payment for a a new home in a seg account because as a floor trader, she's like, this is the safest account in the world. This is where I'm going to put down payment for my two baby twins. So, you know, I'm like... I got I like I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never been trained in any of this stuff, right? But I'm like, you know, who else is going to help these people, right? right? So I tell them all. I'm like, listen, I can't handle this call volume. Okay, you guys got to stop calling me individually. Yeah, but um, you Online, know, I'm like, baby. I will do a daily. <laughs> yeah, use the internet. So I'm like, we will do a daily conference call um, and update everyone. And like, honestly, one of the biggest problems was finding a conference called bridge bridge yeah, to handle enough. everybody. Right. Right. We had to, we had to like upgrade the conference bridges like three times. Right. So thank oh God, God, John and I are both programmers. Right. And we're able right. to like figure out like the IT elements of this. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, things progress. Right. And we're just initially just trying to keep people informed, but like the calls are going from a thousand people up to 10,000 people. Yeah. 
you know, because there's 38,000 customers in this bankruptcy, right? Right. And it, no one knows what to do. And then, um, you know, it's a complicated case. So MF Global had 44 entities. Yep. Okay. Um, the two main cases were MF Global Inc., which is a broker dealer, and MF Global Holdings, which is mm-hmm. the holding company, mm-hmm. right? And so the customers were all in the broker dealer. But then, you know, the really big money is the holding company. Right. Holding company is $44 billion, broker dealer is $6.7 billion, right? right? So JP Morgan, they were the biggest lender to MF Global. They were their prime broker. They were the clearing settlement agent for the trade. So they had, they had one. Right? They, didn't, they didn't spread their risk around. They had one contra- contact, JP Morgan. They didn't go to a well, bunch they of had, you know, they, they had a couple, right? Like BMO Harris was a, one of the customer custodians. They could be their foreign um, forex. It was a big company, yeah. but you know, I think given the liquidity crunch that Emerald Global was facing and they had all these relationships with JP Morgan. Yeah. Uh, like they were using Goldman for some stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. But like most of the bad stuff that Emerald Global did was with JP Morgan because they were mm-hmm. able to move money from the Emerald Global house. Uh, or for the MF Global customer segregated account at JP Morgan to the MF Global house account instantly or as a book transfer, right? right? And then the repos were all done with JP Morgan UK. So they're able to go boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in minutes, move hundreds of millions of dollars from customers to their own benefit, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so one of the things that kind of came out in this case was that um, JP Morgan had asked MF Global to put in writing that the money is being used to meet these bargain calls were not customer money. And the reason they did that was that there was a revision to the bankruptcy code, the 2005 bankruptcy code revision um, mm-hmm. that said, if you are the counterparty to an over-the-counter derivative transaction, you do not have to do KYC on that money all the way up to the origin. Okay. You could keep, the money paid for that bargain call oh. so long as you don't know that it's illicit, right? Uh-huh. So if you have a reason to believe that there's clear title, that's good enough. And there's somewhat sound public policy behind that because it's like, you know, these markets completely freeze up if you've got to go all the way to the root of all cash, you know, anytime right. you do a transaction. Yeah, totally. You know, but that being said, there, you know, if, if, if MF Global would have signed that this wasn't customer money, JP Morgan could have kept all that money legally. Right. Right. And right. Global didn't. So JP Morgan sent three different versions of a comfort letter asking to them to represent and warrant that uh, this was not customer money. And MF Global never signed any of these wow. letters, right? Wow. And JP Morgan took, you know, kept that money. We wound up getting it back about two years later, right? It took um, two years. For two years, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, you so did, anyway, you did it, just for the record, you did it pro bono. It's not like so. Yeah, um, I do. So the CCC, we raised about two hundred thousand dollars in donations. Mm-hmm. In comparison, the trustees. So there are two trustees appointed. There's Louis Free, who was Clinton's FBI director, right? Was a trustee of MF Global Holdings, mm-hmm. and there was James Giddens and Hughes Hubbard and Reed. They were the trustee in the broker dealer case. Right. They were also the trustee in the Lehman Brothers case. Right. right? Right. Those two trustees, if I recall, build in fees, expenses, like they have consulting companies that they own and stuff. Yeah. Right. They build two point four billion with a B. Wow. Fees. So Whoa. Yeah. So we so we raised two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in donations and with that, 
we got 101 cents on the dollar eventually uh, uh-huh. from a global customer, so about 6.8 billion. Wow. Um, and then we also did the PFG bankruptcy pro bono. Right. Uh, recovered about 300 million there. We wrote the um, Commodity Customer Protection Reform Act, uh, which got through the House three times. It's never gotten through the Senate. Mm. Um, but, you know, reform bill, uh, John and I each testified before Congress. He was in the Senate, I was in the House. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we did all that on $200,000. Our tax accountants made us take $2,500 each in salary to be in compliance with the IRS nonprofit rules. Wow. Um, and then we, we declined to apply to the bankruptcy estate for fee because um, we, you know, we didn't want right. to profit off of uh, you know, fraud victims and, and right, whatnot. Right. But yeah, I mean, our, our, our biggest win in the case was really six weeks after the bankruptcy. So um, you know, when kind of the J.P. Morgan stuff comes to light, um, they basically made this filing in the holdings case where, you know, kind of contract, you would be like Typhon Capital Management, comma, Typhon Holdings, yeah. in parentheses, like the companies, and you like yeah. to find the word companies, almost like a variable in computer programming, right? Well, basically, J.B. Warren's lawyers tried to attach a super priority lien to the assets in the broker-dealer case within the definition of the word company in a filing in the MCO holding case, oh my right? God. So it was this like- is, This is legal so mumbo we, jumbo to me, but that's why my daughter's in law school. So go ahead. <laughs> right. Well, so, so our team were the only people to notice this. Um, and we objected to it like one hour before the, the deadline. Yeah. Um, and I flew back to New York, got on a court. Um, you know, we were prepping in my office. It was like Sam- you know, our clients, our manager, a couple other volunteers, my little sister until you know, 2 a.m. And, you know, our, our little Chicago office, mm-hmm. um, my sister goes back to my apartment to pack for me, accidentally packed my tuxedo instead of a nice. black suit. Oh, Thankfully, I checked it or I would have been in black tie in court arguing. Oh, that would have been, been, been a little been awkward. Classic. Right. <laughs> but, but that hearing is where we coined. And I remember this conference all around with, with 10 the people. I'm like, we need an acronym. Yeah. We need an acronym. So we come up with the CCC, the Commodity Customer Coalition. So, you know, I could walk in a court, 30 years old, clean shaven, looking like I'm 12. Yeah. And, you know, James Katulis on behalf of the, the, the Commodity Customer Coalition, sir. And, you know, that's where it all started. We, you know, we formed that nonprofit, uh, you know, about a week later, um, you know, legally. Wow. And, uh, you know, we really went to the mat, right? I mean, like, you know, we held our own in court. Our biggest court victory was, um, you know, with the help of um, a compliance consultant, Susan Osmansky, who was part of the CCC. Right. Um, basically, her, John, and I came up, you know, with the premise that all of this fraud happened at the omnibus level, Right. Yep. And the customers, futures customers have been used to getting, you know, daily statements every day, right? And if there's an error on that daily statement, you have to report that statement within 24 hours or you own the error, right? Right. So the trustee in the case was was appointed by CIPA, which is the, the securities insurance protection arm of the government, right, to, to insure broker-dealers. And basically, he had said under CIPA, everyone's got to file a claim form. It's going to take nine months. To get anybody any money out of this, right? And you know, this is nine months of people having zero access to their funds, right? Um, having to process these claim forms, you know, bankruptcy lawyer fees get accrued like mad during this time, right? So, you know, really, if you want to preserve capital, it's all about getting money out quick, right? And that yeah. preserves businesses, gets people right. access to their cash. 
So basically, Susan John and I came up with this plan, and much to the trustee's chagrin, the judge made him meet with us, hear our plan, and wound up accepting the plan. But basically, we said, instead of making everybody go through this claim process for a first distribution, we could use those statements as a de facto claim form. You tell everybody that if there's an error on the statement, let us know. We'll take your claim up separately. If not, we could have a negative consent interim claim process using the statement, give people 72% of their cash back, and and then, and then work on getting the final claim form to give everything out. And the judge accepted that plan. So that allowed us that to helps. get $4.5 billion in assets six weeks after the bankruptcy. Oh, wow. So the trustee's original plan was $3.8 billion in nine months. We got 4.5 in six weeks. You know, so people you know, we're pretty happy, right? So we got countless phone calls. Like you saved my house, you saved my farm, you saved Christmas. Yeah, so that that, that was pretty cool. And then, you know, we took it all the way to the mat. You know, like our the media angle was super important to this, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think Reuters, we were the only grassroots. As you talk through this, you know, and and we know how the media works, it's it's sound bites. And if you're governor of New Jersey and a former senator, you certainly have a lot of the media on your side and you're able to manipulate it. And, and I think the case itself is so complex and so in the weeds that most people won't understand it. I mean, they barely understand a traditional bankruptcy, let alone something like this. So um, yeah, I think, I think the media was very important. Interesting. Yeah, hell, I mean, Rick Santelli, you know, yeah. who we both know was, was right. instrumental in this. I mean, he, he got me on CNBC like at least once a week right. during this whole case until JP Morgan threatened to pull all of their advertising <laughs> network wide. I had to go on hi- hiatus from CNBC for a while, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, Stephanie Rule from, from Bloomberg took over, helped give us a voice, mm-hmm. you know, the Chicago Tribune, Forbes, yeah. Fortune, like Leah, Leah McGrath Goodman. Uh, you know, well, wrote some early stories that I think were very it, influential. And it was it was three years after the financial crisis manifested itself. And people were upset that the banks didn't get anything but a slap on the wrist for that. Um, I think general public opinion. I mean, and, and even that, even the financial crisis, without delving too much in the weeds, without Fannie and Freddie, that can't happen. And that never really gets reported. So very interesting. Well, yeah, and then, and, and then so I, I just want to touch on that real quick yeah. before we end, mm-hmm. uh, if you've got five minutes. So, sure. so in this case, you've got Corzine on tape lines saying to move the money, right? It's gross violations of, of the Commodity Exchange Act. You know, the CFTC filed a brilliant civil complaint against him. They went through all the brokerage tapes. Um, it's one of the best complaints I've ever read as an attorney. And what happened is, you know, Corzine is a big time Democratic guy. Mm -hmm. Um, He was one of Obama's biggest donors. And, you know, we saw this this was one of the big obstacles to getting this case prosecuted. And, you know, let me tell you, 100 percent unequivocally, if Corzine was a Republican governor, I would have went after him with the exact same fury. Um, I don't think that there was anything partisan about this case. You know, the guy took risks. He was wrong. He stole from his customers to try to bail himself out. He broke the law. Okay, right. I don't care what party he is. A lot of people in Washington do care. Right. You know, like not. Uh, I think only two Democrats would even meet with me in all of my trips to D.C. Um, you know, to discuss the case. I mean, this was completely verboten. You know, 
Of course, um, course and, the flip side know, of that is every Republican would meet with you because they wanted to get them, right? Because they, they're so partisan there, so. Um, right, I mean, yeah. it's disgusting. <laughs> to me, a crime is a crime. It doesn't right. matter what party you're in, matter. but you know, maybe I'm naive. Yeah. But anyway, so in Obama's last week in office, uh, the CFTC civil complaint was settled for $5 billion. That's about 1.6% of Corzine's net worth. Mm. So he paid 1.6% of his net worth for basically stealing $1.7 billion from 38,000 people. You know, I think it was 2,800 employees of MF Global lost their job. All the yep. wreckage of, yeah. of the futures industry, the net worth hit you took and everybody else. Right. Right. And Obama was much smoother than Clinton. Right. Mm -hmm. So Clinton got a lot of heat for pardoning Mark Rich. Right. Um, right? But Obama was smart enough and Eric Holder was smart enough to never charge Corzine. So they were able to give him a de facto federal pardon by not charging him and running out the federal statute of limitations. Right. So, you know, this is something I haven't said publicly before, but uh, Sam Tenenbaum and I and the Northwestern Investor Protection Clinic, we spent three years working on a criminal complaint, indictment, charging memo, about a thousand pages of cited appendices. Um, we have provided this to multiple state white-collar crime prosecutors, attorney generals. We think there's numerous state actions that still could be taken at Corzine. There are still some, some active discussions going on about that. So Interesting. You know, me as an attorney unequivocally think that he has broken the law, that there are legal grounds to prosecute him even after Obama ran out the statute of limitations. And, you know, I urge anyone who's listening, who is a customer there to call their attorney general and tell them to call me. And I yeah. am happy to share this years of work that we have, you know, done on nights and weekends, because um, we think it's so fundamental to to our country and the protection of private property. Right. And how sickened I am with the two-tier justice system that because someone is is a donor, you know, to the president and an elite, that he could steal one point six billion dollars and not be charged. I think it's disgusting. It is disgusting. So you know, any AG, any AG that agrees, call me up. I got all the goods on this guy. <laughs> I'm happy to help for free to, to see this guy in an orange jumpsuit. But I tell you, it's it, the private property issue is big. Without private property rights, you can't have efficient markets, and you can't trade, and you can't you know, enter and manage risk and do all the stuff that we do. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the program, James. I appreciate your time today and uh, look Thanks forward for having to me, bud. seeing you in the future. Where can people find you on the web? Uh, at James Catullus on, on Twitter is probably the best way. So James, K-O-U-T as in Tom, O-U-L-A-S. Uh, feel free to DM me, but, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I'll then, always try to help then, in, in situations yeah. like this. And then if I wanted to be an institutional investor in Typhon, where, how would I find you? <laughs> you could DM me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> check out our website, uh, typhoncap.com. So T as in Tom, Y, P as in Paul, H, O, N as in Nancy, C as in Cat, A as in Apple, P as in Paul.com. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Congratulations. And, and um, thank you for uh, chatting with us. The first part of the program, of course, had to do with how to become an institutional trader. And the second one was on a recalcitrant uh, institutional trader. So uh, have a great holiday coming up and uh, good trading to everybody. Thank you very much. 
Hey, traders, thank you for making it to the grand finale of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Be sure to mark your calendars for next Tuesday, or this Tuesday, I suppose, because uh, that's when our podcast listener survey is going live. And that means you can claim your shot at one of those $100 Amazon gift cards. Because remember, we're randomly giving out 10 of them just in time for the holidays. Hopefully, we'll be able to announce some of those lucky winners on next week's episode. Also, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, check out the Top Step blog, and of course, have a happy holidays. That's all we have for this week. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.